Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and, and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Oh, good morning, everyone. I invite you to take your scriptures, and I do encourage you to uh, open up in your device or your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, which if you turn right to the middle, you're going to hit Psalms or Proverbs, and uh, just the next book over is Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you don't have a copy of uh, God's Word, we actually have a few on the table back there, and you're welcome to grab one of those uh, with, our, with our compliments. So we are um, in a series where we are tracking... Uh, with the preacher on a search for the meaning of life. And um, there's going to be some phrases and terms that we've pointed out that are just going to help you with that. Let me just uh, bring you into this. You can join us at any time in this series. And uh, so one of those phrases is under the sun. And that is the teacher's way of saying that his observation field is going to be basically what you can see and touch and observe here on this earth. Now, this is not to say there is not truth that comes from God above the sun, but that is what he is limiting his observations to. A second really helpful term is vanity, and that's a shape-shifting word. It means breath, means brief and unsubstantial, uh, and sometimes it even means, and I think it takes this sense in our passage today at one point, absurd or meaningless. And then finally, it really helps to know who is talking to us. And so this is um, a, the preacher, the teacher, the professor, some call him the quester, or we could just call him the transliteration of the word Koheleth. And uh, this is maybe Solomon, probably somebody who wrote after the um, exilic phase of Israel's history, uh, but he was writing in the tradition of Solomon. Now, Today we're going to look at another one of these themes that uh, the preacher enjoys, and this is, is toil. In his very fine book of sermons entitled, Why Everything Matters, uh, Philip Ryken, who is uh, the eighth president of Wheaton College, uh, recounts the story of Leonard Wolfe. Now, Leonard Wolfe was a British publisher, and he's the founder of the Bloomsbury Group, and he has, happens to also be the husband of the famous Virginia Wolfe. And uh, he had this to say about his life and work. I see clearly, Leonard wrote, that I've achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as if it is if I had played ping pong 
instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 to 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Well, Leonard sounds like uh, a very clear writer, very intellectual guy, intelligent. I think he and the preacher probably would have gotten along. And I think most of us can appreciate his honesty because perhaps in our quieter moments we've wondered something similar. I mean, we wonder if that spreadsheet that we spent hours and hours on and labored on, once it accomplished its purpose, it goes into the digital dustbin and is irrelevant. Was it worth it? If the knowledge and care that you've poured into a student when you know that you can't change their home situation and you know that their life choices are probably going to be bad, you wonder if your care mattered. Or maybe the care that you administered to a patient. You know, you got them through this, but there's like a, a, the ER is filling up once again. Or if the snotty nose that you wiped is going to rise up and call you blessed someday, or just be foolish. Or if the people with problems who appear to have no progress are going to continually sit in your office and you just think like, am I moving the needle at all here? So who has not returned from a day of school or a day of hard work and wondered if you've made a mark? It's a pretty uncomfortable feeling. The professor seems to be concerned with an entire generation of Israelites who were making and losing fortunes in some heady days of trade following uh, this, this time where Israel became a trade route. And so there were, there were these, these young men probably who were running and setting their ladders up on these walls and climbing up them. And he's saying, will you someday ask for what? Even Christians, if we don't have wisdom in Revelation, we may end up wondering if we ground out an entire lifetime of useless work. And so what I would like to do today is provide you with the mental framework that is necessary for you to avoid that. The title of the sermon today is More Observation About Toil. Now you're like, well, we've talked about toil. Yeah, well, he's got more observations about it, and I think he brings us into new territory. So maybe the preacher can point us in the right direction on how to find meaning in our toil with more observations about toil. So let's let's dive in and see. The first observation that he makes is found in verses 7 and 8. Let's read those verses together. It won't be on the screen. Look at your text. Again, he says in verse 7, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who had no other, either son or brother, Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, the last time he called toil vanity and an unhappy business was a previous week, where he said that pretty much everything that we do is motivated out of envy. Now, one of his observations there is that we seem hardwired to, to compete and to cut throats and to keep up with the Joneses, and he said that is vanity. But he's going to add another observation about toil. Again, I saw, he said, and he tells us a story. Now, who doesn't like a good story? You know, that's really a, a great feature of wisdom 
literature. And so his story's going to begin, so there was this guy. There was this guy, and he was quite alone. He had neither son nor brother. He had no family. He had no heirs. Did you know that there's an entire department uh, in Delaware's government that is committed to reconnecting unclaimed assets with their owners? Yeah, in that, in last year they, they boasted like $1.5 billion of unclaimed assets were connected with their owners. Now, you know, we're, we're a state that has incorporation, lots of incorporation, so I'm sure a lot of these are bankrupt businesses and, you know, cars that get towed and that kind of thing. But I bet you in that mix is a bunch of people who didn't leave a will and they left it pretty much unclaimed. Now, some of those people were just bad planners, I'm sure, But some of them, I would imagine, are people who had no one, and that is sad. You know, I asked my buddy ChatGPT how many unclaimed assets were from people with no heirs in Delaware, and it cheerfully suggested that I do my own research. (laughs) Oh, well, it was worth a shot. Well, despite having no one with whom to share his wealth, he never stopped striving. It says there was no end to all of his toil, and he's never satisfied His eyes were never satisfied with his riches. Now, in Scripture, the eyes are the window to the soul. So if your eyes are not satisfied, that means your soul is not satisfied. And he never asked the question. This never-enough view on life blinds him so that he never asked the question, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Now, the truth is, if this person, this guy, had actually asked that question, he would have taken Kohelis' earlier advice that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. So we've noted that the best thing that one could do under the sun alone was to actually enjoy your work. Enjoy what you eat and drink. Enjoy your craftsmanship. Enjoy the job that you did. That's the best we can do under the sun. And that is good advice. We also learned that those who allow God to speak into it They take their work and all the gifts from God and they turn it to worship. They look through the window at God and they give thanks for it. And so there's actually something even more than this. But the very least that he could do is to take time to enjoy what he's earned. Take a vacation. Enjoy his assets because he has no one to leave it to. You know, I can't hear this without without thinking of all the portrayals of Ebenezer Scrooge that I've seen over the years. Remember that scene where he's, he's, he's in a cold house eating his little crust of bread and cheese. And uh, he didn't know he was sad and isolated, which is why he had to be awakened to that fact. But there's something else that occurred to me. This may not be a miser. Now, maybe this person in this story is a miser, but maybe he isn't. Maybe tragedy has bereft him of his family. Maybe he has no one to share it with and there's nothing he can do about it. And so he's trying to drown his sorrow in work and gathering. In that case, he is a pitiable figure and worth our compassion. The question that he laments, or maybe the question that he never asks, for whom am I toiling, is a very good question, and it needs to be answered. Now, we're going to take this up a little bit later today, but it does push us in the direction that the rest of Scripture is going to fill out for us a little bit further. For labor to be good, it has to have a for whom. Without that, it is just sad. Now, he makes a second observation. So this first one is that it is sad and absurd to labor by yourself. All right? 
Then he moves on and he says, however, here's something better. So he's going to talk about the value of friendship. Toiling with somebody is better than going it alone. We find this in verses 9 through 12. I invite you to look at your text, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But who, how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he leads off with a proverb here, two are better than one. His advice is, don't go it alone. He immediately explains why two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. Now, this may be that, um, you know, a business partnership, if you've got one person who's good with numbers and one person good for a promotion, with promotion, then they're going to have a lot more reward for their labor. Or maybe they just have the pleasure of having companionship and enjoying what they're doing um, more than they're isolated. But, you know, if we're talking about meaning in life, it must mean more than just profit and pleasure and point to the fact that it brings meaning to their endeavors. Maybe it means that partnership and friendship and community is good because it's how we're wired. It actually kind of goes with the grain. We have a God who is a communing God, and so we are communing creatures made in his image. It kind of gives us a shove in that direction that this is a way that we have meaning. Now, the preacher is going to supply three examples of why two are better than one. And all of them happen to relate to the dangers of traveling in that day. If you traveled, there was plenty to fear. You could fall into a pit or down a ravine and have no one to to pull you up. You could freeze to death or you could get attacked by robbers. Of course, he doesn't mean for this to stay literal like traveling dangers. These are all pictures. Falling into a pit is any difficulty that you encounter that you need help getting out of. Notice the scripture says, they fall into a pit. The idea is not that they fall in together. The idea is that like one or the other at any time could possibly fall into a pit. And maybe this will happen on more than one occasion. And having a friend, a partner, or a community to call is absolutely key. You know, how often has you had a a friend pull you out of an emotional time where you're really down and somebody comes along and they say just the right words? Or you're the one who does that for them. Or maybe it's some time where someone really got you out of a jam. You know, God has really taken care of our family in the, in the 10 years that we've been in Delaware. Uh, but one of the, the things that we have just had to deal with is the fact that we don't have family in the area. And so we don't immediately have somebody to call. It's kind of easy to underestimate the impact that this has. Now, there was one time that my wife and daughters were... Um, coming back from about 40 minutes away from our house from a concert late at night, and they got a flat tire, all right? And they pulled into uh, a day's end with like a completely flat tire. It had blown. And so um, the problem was she called me, but there were three kids in bed, and our other vehicle was in the shop. Okay, that's a pit. Like, what to do, what to do. It's late at night. So I called the dad of the, the the friend that was with them, and, uh, and like all, you know, reasonable people, he had shut off his phone. And so, once again, I was in my pit. Well, my next answer was this. 
I had just gotten back from a mission trip with, with Matt Jones. Matt, are you over here? Yeah, there he is. You remember this, Matt. Um, you know, we just got back from a mission trip. You know, in traveling and losing your luggage together and, you know, sleeping in hammocks, you know, it kind of like binds you together. And so Matt was, you know, high on my, on my phone list. And so it's around 1030 at night, and I, I call Matt. And I think I woke him out of a dead sleep because I had to explain two or three times what, what the problem was. <laughs> and I sent him to the wrong hotel. So, and it was like 25 minutes away from the other hotel. And so eventually he gets the people I love most and brings them back around 2 a.m. Uh, in the morning. And, I, and my wife remembers asking him, do you, do you know what's going on here? And he said, not really. <laughs> but he did it. And he pulled us out of the pit. You know, the blessing is, now that I think of it, I know any number of my community that I could have called who would have done the exact same thing. But imagine not having a single person that you could call. You know, freezing to death, that was a real possibility. Uh, Exodus talks about the fact that if you take a man's cloak for surety, in other words, you know, like you leave your, your watch with the, you know, with the cashier or whatever while you run out and get your wallet. Um, if you take a man's cloak, you've got to give it back or else he might freeze to death at night. So that was always a problem when traveling. Uh, two huddled together for warmth. There's nothing intimate about that. If you're out there, you did what was necessary to stay warm. Yeah, sure, this could be a marriage partner, but, you know, there's always that one that's uh, the cold one. However, in that culture, it just wouldn't have intimate connotations. This was a traveling danger. And as the man who helped by, was helped by the Good Samaritan learned, there were thieves out there. And if you're traveling alone, chances are you could get beat up. Two people would have a better chance at fending them off. And the next proverb cited may strike us as a little bit weird because we've been talking about two friends, usually, a threefold cord. A three-stranded rope is not quickly broken. The way that Proverbs tend to work, they tend to say something like this, if two are better, then how good will three be? In other words, this is kind of pointing us not just toward friendship and partnership, but toward community, toward alliances. You know, one way to instill meaning in your work is to do it with people. Partnership is so much better than being alone. And again, that could be marriage, but it's not limited to marriage. This has to do with making alliances in life. I just, I just kind of thought about it for a bit. Like, why would we not do this? Why would you not have friends? Why would you, you not make alliances? Well, for one thing, it's easier and quicker to travel alone, right? You don't have to worry about somebody else's point of view. You don't have to worry about their style, their opinions. You don't have to worry about their pace. You can go at your own pace. You don't need to communicate. You don't need to confer. Uh, it just it makes it a lot easier that way. However, this is a path to isolation. And like we just saw with the guy in the first illustration, isolation is sad. Friendship is better. Partnership is useful. And community is beautiful. As for the question, for whom am I toiling, which we said, hey, that's a good question. You need to answer that one. It's also a really good start here and points us in the right direction. But friendship alone does not cut the dilemma of the meaning and toil. Although it is far superior, it is better than being alone. So we looked at toiling with no, for no one is absurd and sad. Toiling with someone is much better than a final observation. Toiling for success is brief and unsubstantial. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 in your text. Better was a poor and wise youth 
than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So here's another one of those better than sayings. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Oh, it's story time again. Most likely this is a parable. But chances it's very, very true to life. It's even possible that he was thinking about David and Saul. In that narrative, David rose from obscurity to take the place of a king who would not listen. However, in turn, David himself came to a place where he did not listen to his advisors, and he survived a coup from a crafty and foolish son. But anyway, no matter where we are in history, most people wouldn't have a hard time imagining where an old and foolish king, where a young person, crafty and hungry, rises up after him. Right, after the bat, right off the bat, you're struck with a pretty unexpected thing about the characters. Usually, it's an old and wise man and a young and foolish youth. This is different. It's reversed. Most likely, there are two characters in this story. You've got an old and a foolish king who didn't know how to take advice. Now, what's interesting about that is he was probably foolish because he wouldn't take advice. You know, there was a time in his life that he may have been a very, very good king, but he came to the point where he was out of touch and just wasn't listening and stubborn, which is extremely dangerous for a king. Remember, this is an autocracy. A single king could plunge your nation into war with a single decision if he wouldn't listen to his advisors. And so this is somewhat terrifying. This would be like um, somebody who was unstable having access to nuclear codes. It's scary. But then you've got this other person, this young and wise youth. And it's kind of a rags-to-riches story. He came out of debtor's prison to reign. His rise was meteoric, and it says, all the living who moved about under the sun. It kind of cracks me up a little bit. It's like saying every man and his brother followed him. Getting behind him, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, which is very much like the story of David. He had an entire nation behind him. But here's the punchline. The next generation rejects him too. His wisdom and his hunger and his great origin story aren't enough to keep the poles up. One of my favorite commentators says this of this, he has reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. Well said. So here's the moral of the story. Don't bank on your meaning coming from popularity and success because those two are brief and unsubstantial. You know, you don't have to look far for modern day examples. In the 90s, uh, the current president, uh, George H.W. Bush at the time, his, his polls were astronomically high because he had just navigated Desert Storm and the fall of the Iron Curtain. He had truly momentous things happen during his his one term. But then he was being challenged by somebody who was young, hungry, and very intelligent, although very flawed. The comeback kid, the governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton. An Arkansas paper scoffed at Bill Clinton's chance of winning in 1992, and here's what they wrote. They said, George Bush bestrode the election of 92 like a colossus. But the economy of the time stagnated, and George Bush... The senior learned that a good foreign policy was not enough to win elections. 
And the Clinton campaign capitalized on that fact and did the impossible. You see, polls switch. Everything is brief and unsubstantial. So the professors made these three observations. It's absurd to work alone and for no one. It's better to work with someone, and it's better to take advice than be out of touch. But in the end, your wisdom will still not guarantee protection from the fleeting nature of popularity. I would say that all these are accurate descriptions of life under the sun, but none of them completely solve our dilemma of finding meaning in our work. In interpreting scripture, sometimes it's helpful to realize that there are multi-levels. Not every passage of scripture takes you to the ultimate ethic, and this is one of those. This is the case, but I do want it to be said here, the preacher, I would say, gets us to about the 20-yard line. Okay, so he has advanced us forward with some amazing wisdom, but we're going to have to look elsewhere to get pushed across the goal line. You know, I could have turned to many places in Scripture to talk about meaning in work, but I'd like to return to some old friends to highlight this point. Last winter, we spent about 12 weeks getting to know a special group of believers in the city of Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece. Paul and a team of missionaries had come to these believers and preached the news to them, and they had accepted the gospel. The first indication that it's possible to break through the no-gain problem is Paul's declaration. He says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. There's our word, vanity. Paul says, listen, I came to you and I preached and I had gain. I had profit. I had reward. Paul wanted to have something left over for his efforts, and he intended to have something to show for his trouble. He came to town with a message, and that message was received with eternal consequences. The result was that God called them into his glorious kingdom. A mighty transfer of citizenship was made. But the whole experience this missionary team had in Thessalonica was not without trouble. Paul reminded them how he and his team worked day and night, laboring for a chance to proclaim the good news of God's work in Jesus Christ. And what we know is that most likely he did this by a trade. Paul was a tent maker. So for our purposes, I want to take you back to that quote about 200,000 hours of useless work. I want you to imagine Paul putting stitches in a tent at 11 p.m. at night after preaching in the synagogues all day. Now, I'm sure Paul was a good craftsman. I'm sure he put, Paul didn't do things by halves. He was a wise man. I also think that Paul probably got great satisfaction for doing his trade well. But Paul wasn't just enjoying his work because this is something he notes I want us to note the presence of the better thans that Koheleth points out. First of all, Paul says, we labor day and night. He was doing it with a team. He was doing it with Paul and, or with Silas and Timothy. They were doing this together, and so he was doing it with a partnership. Second of all, he had answered that question that we said was good to answer. For whom am I toiling? With exclamation marks, he would have said, it is for you that I am toiling. He says, I don't want to be a burden on you. I don't want you to mistake my preaching for you thinking that I want stuff from you. He was doing this so they would have, give the message a hearing. But further, he praised them for doing the same thing. Look at the verse on the screen, verse 3 of chapter 1 of Thessalonians. 
He says, remembering, or we remember before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that phrase, labor of love. He praised them for doing the same thing. He praised God for every labor that they did to benefit their families, to glorify God, and to share with their new spiritual community, the church, as well as how they spread the word throughout the region. You know, they had a for whom, and they had a purpose. They were doing it to support themselves. They were doing it to share with others and to give to mission. So again, we're not talking about super spiritual activities. We're talking about manual labor here the mundane things that are driven by love for your people. We're talking about the changing of diapers and the protecting of people and healing people and making that sale and doing a tough job day in and day out. When you have a for whom and a why, God will take your good and fill it with meaning through his power. Let's say that again. When you have a for whom and a why, God will take your resolve to do good and fill it with meaning through his power. Paul wrote elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. He says all of these are important, but only one of them is going to heaven. And why would love be the greatest? Because our faith will someday turn to sight. Our hope will will be realized, but those that we have loved will be with us forever. When we love in Jesus' name, it's as if we did it to him. You know, Ecclesiastes is wisdom. One of the great things about wisdom is that it works for whoever will embrace it. Any person under the sun can access this wisdom to a certain extent. Anybody under the sun can realize that toiling for no one is absurd. In other words, go ahead and enjoy what you have, or do it for someone. Toiling with someone is better than going it alone. I mean, I praise the Lord that, that this church and the world is full of partnerships and alliances and communities and friendships. That's a beautiful thing. Toiling for success is brief and unsubstantial. Hey, it is okay for you to crush it at work. It is okay for you to be the very best that you can be. But succeeding in a major way should be taken with a grain of salt. The poles will shift. Enjoy it while you can. And then I might add one other previous insight. He says, enjoy your work. Enjoy the job itself. You know, I've got a guy who's uh, working on a project for me right now where he, he gets delight and pleasure out of drywall like out of patching something in a perfect way so that you can't even tell something happened. He finds delight in that, and I find delight that he finds delight in that. He's enjoying his job. However, those who serve God find ultimate meaning and reward. And here's how they do that. Labor motivated by love. So I've got to ask you the question, you know, how do you access that level of meaning? How do you access it so that all of your good intentions are filled, all of your resolve is filled with God's power so that it will reward you someday? Well, that is going to take a transfer of citizenship. You will have to be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light before you can realize this level of meaning. And Paul, he points out one helpful way of understanding it. 
and he does it in that same Thessalonians passage. Look at this, these two verses in Thessalonians. I'm going to briefly underline something, just point something out. Notice he says, the kind of reception that we had among you. He says, in order to make a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you've got to receive the message, and you've got to receive the messenger. He said, we came with good news about the kingdom, and you listened to us. Boy, hear this today. The good news is being proclaimed to you. You can make that transfer today to the kingdom of light. And so this message is for you. Second, how you turn to God from idols. You know, they, of course, had literal idols to reject, but don't for a second think that we've moved past all that. Idols are what we count on to make life possible and to make life worth living apart from God. Idols are what we count on to make life possible and make life worth living apart from God. They are competing visions of the good life and what can bring it to you. Do not think that we have escaped idols. You can walk through your local mall and you can see competing visions of what the good life looks like. Tonight we will see all kinds of awesome commercials that will tell us what the good life looks like. But if we pursue that apart from God, we are pursuing an idol. What I trust apart from God must be turned from. I must turn to him as the giver. Then they turn to serve the living and the true God. You know, it's not a question of whether or not you will be a slave. You will be a slave to something. Jesus Christ in one of his few either-or statements said, either you will love God or you will serve mammon. Money could be, it could be translated money, but it's more than that. Guys, it is, it is that system of living, of buying and getting and getting more gain and trading and, and pursuing these things. That is mammon. And he says you can only have one or the other. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't mistake it. Becoming Christian means that you will take on a yoke. But Jesus said, it's a yoke of rest. And we serve the living and the true God. Next, he says, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's no doubt about who the Savior is. It is the Jesus that rose from dead and who will return someday. Bank your hope on that one. Now, I'm not sure if I've done justice you know, to the entire answer of how do you make sure you don't have 150,000 hours of useless work, but I think we've taken some steps toward it. First of all, if you answer the question, for whom do I toil? Okay, so if you answer that question and in your mind appears names and faces of people that you hope to spend eternity with, if that's the way you answer that question, you're advancing. I think you're on the right path. If you have a community of people who can pull you out of a pit, you're also in a good place. If you can smile at your success but not count on it to bring you meaning, then you'll not be devastated if it shifts. And if you labor motivated by love, then you have found that God will take your good intentions and he will instill meaning into it, into your toil. So perhaps today you need to refocus whom you labor for. Maybe it's going back to your job with as hard working, as hard as you possibly can, doing it as excellently as you can, enjoying your work, giving thanks to God, but also saying, 
I am trying to work for these people, for my society, for my family. That's where you need to do today. Maybe you need to examine whether your individualism is keeping you from building trust-filled relationships. Maybe you've said, wow, you know, like they, they get in my way, they cramp my style. And it's like, no, you need to start investing more in your community. Maybe you need to turn from idols to the true and living God and wait for the return of one who can deliver you. So whatever your need today, I invite you to lay down your burden, lay down your pain. All who are weary, lift up your face. Wanderer, come home, you're not too far. Lay down your hurt, lay down your heart. Come as you are. Let's pray. Father, I ask you would deliver us from 200,000 hours of useless work. I pray that you would give us the framework that we need to be joyful, busy, happy Christians who are motivated by labor, who engage in the most menial of things, realizing that our resolve to do good is something that you can glorify yourself and give us joy through. Oh, Lord, do that for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.